Hello and welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman. Hi, and I'm Cameron Whitman. Hey, Cameron. Hey, man. How you doing? Great. This is the promised episode about medium format cameras. Yeah, we were supposed to do it like the week after we announced, <laughs> after we released the last one. Let's just pretend that it is. <laughs> and so I, I, this was all caused by me playing with a Hasselblad for a while. I think I had it for two weeks, the new X1D mirrorless medium format camera from Hasselblad. Super sexy. Oh, it's it's very sexy. And I'll, I'll talk about it in some more detail. But um, I think in general, I want to make sure the episode is a good general medium format show where we, um, if you're somebody that only shoots 35, like myself, <laughs> uh, that, you know, it kind of helps give you a bit of an idea of what you might be missing out on by not working in larger formats or why people that do work in larger formats stick to them, why the cameras are more expensive, why... Why, 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 why? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think you know a bit more about this than I do. Oh, I'm not sure I do. I might. We'll see. Well, but in the film world, that's what I think you know more about. Because you have shot more film medium format. More medium. That, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, you're, you're, you're probably right about that. Whereas for me, it's, it's only a novelty of testing cameras. I've never um, had a medium for my camera, f- needed it for a shoot, like rented one because the shoot required it. So, I mean, that's like an interesting place to start is that uh, in the digital age, their place has become a little bit different, I think, than it it was in the film era. Because uh, for one thing, the price difference wasn't as large back when you were shooting all film. Right. How how much was like a sports 35 millimeter camera? Maybe um, $2,000? Yeah, I think that seems about right. I mean, it was, I think it was relatively comparable. Well, but I mean, for quite a while, the the high end digitals were closer to ten thousand. I mean, they've come down a bit now. Yeah. And medium formats, I uh, I shouldn't be saying this because I don't know. I think medium formats were like four thousand, and now the the equivalent Hasselblad would be twenty thousand. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the one I was playing with is is around eleven thousand, but those all these numbers are just. To, to say that they're, they're much more inflated, um, not unnecessarily, like not without reason, but they um, are not as attainable. You don't see as many photographers having both or or, or selecting medium format without a very good reason because you are going to need to be able to pay for it. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, I, I often wonder, because this is true for myself, but I often wonder how often people see you know, somebody else's work and are like blown away by the quality and have no idea that it was shot on medium format. Yeah. And this is an interesting thing about it in general is, is the uses of it. I mean, a lot of photographers I know want the camera because the camera is better. (laughs) It's a nicer piece of machinery. When they zoom in on the photos, they can see the difference. And I can, I mean, at a hundred percent, it really looks great. Uh, Any medium for my camera looks Amazing, and there is a there is a, a, a difference between that and a, a great thirty five millimeter camera. But a lot of the time, at, a, at usable sizes, it's not obvious what it was shot on, which I think is kind of kind of interesting. How much you're spending to get that like final level of perfection, right? Yeah, it's not this huge jump. It's not going to blow people away. People aren't going to walk right up to him and be like, "Wow, like that was shot on a twenty thousand dollar camera." Well, I think you just touched on the most important part of this conversation. Frankly, is that you know where and why would you need this? Because you're right; it's so much more expensive, and in so many end uses, nobody's going to be able to really tell. So let's um, let's make sure we. Give a medium format a fair shake. Mm-hmm. What what jobs would you be hired for that you'd be like, you know what, I need a, a medium format for this. I'm, I'm going to go rent one. <laughs> that's that's actually the exact question keeping me from buying one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, because yeah. uh, you know, what jobs can I imagine? Even I don't know. To be honest, well, with you, I, I can definitely imagine them. I just I don't get these jobs. But let's imagine them for a second. Things like if you, if you're shooting campaigns that are going to be really widely used for really big companies across a lot of billboards and Mm -hmm. in a lot of magazines and there will be a lot of marketing money behind that one photo so you're not shooting high volume at all like really low volume Mm -hmm. it's going to be printed in a really wide range of formats so another good example being a movie poster 
there's no reason not to have every bit of data in that one photo you possibly can. Like the, the photo should be as close to perfect as it can be because you kind of don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how big it's going to be. Um, you know, it's, it, you have to be prepared for anything and you're probably going to be paid well enough that the camera cost is more or less irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I do know that as a food shooter, I think that most people that shoot food, at least at my level, probably don't even think that medium format is something that would be in their future. Right. To be honest, I don't think that it's something that would occur to people. Yeah. But when I go and I look at like some high-end food photographers' websites, and sadly I don't have any at the top of my mind to share, there are times when I see something and I'm just like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And really it hadn't occurred to me for a very long time that that could be something that would really take your work to the next level until I saw some and I was like, wow, that extra detail really did add a lot to this. Mm-hmm. Not only with, with the detail, but also the, um, the dynamic range and, and the color rendition. It's like everything's perfect. Well, and so that's a good example of where I think it'd be useful is with color specifically, if you just are going for sort of standard regular life colors, um, I don't think you're going to see a big jump between them. But as soon as you need to move your dynamic range or colors around at all in post, like you need to start rescuing things or making adjustments, I do believe there's enough more data that it becomes really valuable. Like things like, I mean, the Hasselblads are true 16-bit instead of, I don't know, I think like the A7R2 is like is 12-bit. I think some are 14, but they're not 16-bit. Like they're just is more total color information. And so when you've got um, like gradients in your sky and just, well, gradients in general that need a really subtle difference in, in tonal changes, there is so much more data there that allows you to, as you process your final image, just have more perfect control over getting there and uh, less likely to end up with banding uh, or unwanted artifacts in general. Now, which one of the Hasselblads was 16-bit? Well, I'm looking at the H6D right now. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. Which those are sort of the more um, standard Hasselblads, right? That's what you think of when you traditionally think of a Hasselblad. Uh, That's like their current uh, 100-megapixel top-of-the-line model. Yeah, I think if I was going to get one, to be honest, I think if I was going to get one, I would go in this direction as opposed to... I'm sorry, what's the The, name of the one? The X1D. But I did just check, and it is also 16-bit. That's that's awesome, and what it should be. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the the this one, the X one D. I after spending some time with it, I definitely feel like it is it is a luxury item. Um, mm-hmm. It's targeted at like a luxury market. Like this is when the money is just not an issue for you. Like you are comfortable spending over ten thousand dollars on one of your cameras, and um, it's not just for work. You know, like. If you're going to be buying a camera just for work and you have this kind of budget available, like you should be looking at leasing a H6D or, or something more um, full-featured, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the mirrorlessness and the, the compact size is, um, you know, part of it's just that it's new and it's experimental and it's pushing the format forward. Well, and it um, looks incredible. Oh, and it feels it. incredible too. Yeah, no, it's yeah. just, it, you're just buying a, a beautiful sculpture to shoot photos with in a lot of ways, but they, they, uh, and I think it is the same sensor as the 50 megapixel one on the, there's, there's another H60 that is 50 megapixels. I think it's the same sensor, but back to my original point of that, I think if you are after a single image that needs to be perfect, perfect, you're looking at the right kind of camera because things you're giving up are shooting speed because things like autofocus slow down, write speeds to the card slow down because the files are enormous. Mm-hmm. And um, size. Yeah, the physical size, right? Mm-hmm. Just kind of ability to move it around. Mm-hmm. So you, you're a bit more restricted. And so you're probably going to be using it in more controlled situations where everybody's, you know, planning for this one shot that will look this one way. I'm, I'm trying to look at these from a pragmatic perspective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think like, Oh man, that that Fuji is is nice looking, and and the Hasselblad is is even nicer looking, in my opinion. 
as far as the mirrorless style, mm-hmm. um, but you know, would that make sense for me? Because I I think of it the same way as I think of my Mamiya Seven film camera is that I would probably use it for similar situations, which are not right. my quote unquote pro situations. Right. Yeah, it wouldn't be that often that you needed to pull it out. I mean, yeah, I'd be making it for the reasons that, that you just mentioned that that it might be appropriate. It's like it's basically wrist candy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if I was going to go with a medium format system, I'd need something that was a full system. Well, yeah. and another reason that I would rather go with uh, like the H system for Hasselblad's is that it uh, it also is just a wider lens selection. So one thing that attracts a lot of people to medium format is the ability to have a shallower depth of field at the same aperture. That causes you to imagine all medium format as having this extremely buttery smooth bokeh all the time, kind of. Yeah, yeah. But you really still need to, I mean, I kind of I kind of knew this, but I really discovered it spending time with the Hasselblad. You need to still have a relatively low aperture to get that. Uh, so a lot of the lenses are cut off around f4, and there's less options that go down to like 2.8. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a 3.5. It was a 40, the, the main lens I was using is a 45 millimeter 3.5. And that does give you a really nice blur, um, mm-hmm. maybe similar to a 2.8, but it doesn't give you like the 1.2, 1.4 super, you know, creamy blur that um, I have associated in my mind with medium format. But you do need to get a lens that supports that to be able to mm-hmm. do it, which is is going down to something like 2.0. Or, um, I'm not familiar with all the lenses on offer, but uh, yeah, you, you basically what I'm saying is you don't just get it for free by having a medium format lens. No, <laughs> so <laughs> definitely not. Um, I think that going back to like what would make sense to somebody in my position or your position. Mm-hmm. And I've been looking at this a lot lately just because you made me curious. And, and then, you know, I started going down that rabbit hole and, and damn you, Tyler Stallman. Damn Sorry you. about that. You're to blame. If I end up divorced and on, on the street, like it's your fault. <laughs> so just letting you know. I will not take <laughs> um, As far as I can tell, the cream of the crap seems to be the phase one system. Yeah, I've been talking about Hasselblad because I've looked at it more, but... Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people also. Also, my with the friends that I have that shoot medium format also use Hasselblad. Uh, all of them actually. I don't have. I haven't. Don't have any friends with Phase Ones. Yeah, but I know. I, I I know its reputation for sure. So, do you know of any photographers that do use it? Because I've been asking around and I've been finding it pretty damn rare. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I I understand that that Joey L uses one, um, and Ruben Wu. Uses one. Do you know who Ruben is? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, look him up. All right. He's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> um, and I know that he uses them on occasion as well. And it's just fantastic. But I can't think of, you know, like, I don't know who else uses them. I guess in my in my mind's mind, I would think that somebody like Annie Leibovitz would have this system. But I, I've seen her work and she shoots with cannons. <laughs> so... Or at least when I saw her, she was using cameras. When I've seen her, she'll often just have them both sitting around. Like, they're just, there's three or four, like a few different cannons and a few different medium formats. I'm trying to pull up exactly which medium formats she shoots with. But um, uh, I, I see her just sort of switch back and forth fluidly. Like, she'll, in, in some videos I've seen, she'll just be picking one up and putting the other down. Yeah, and sort of making sense. decisions on the fly about like, oh, I feel like this now. You know, like I said, in my in my mind's eye, I, I imagine that somebody with that profile is the person that would use this. Or somebody that does like really high-end commercial, like like luxury automobiles and, and mm-hmm. luxury other luxury product shots and stuff like that. And so, you know, I wonder like, you know, okay, so what what do I have to do to, to get this? And then I have to ask myself, wait a minute. <laughs> Am I now asking, like, what do I need to approach in terms of subject matter so that I can get this level of camera? That's, yeah. like, the most ridiculous. Well, but, I mean, that's such a good example of, like, why um, this is a lame conversation now, but, you know, why <laughs> technique is so much more important. Because, like, look at Annie Leibowitz's best work. You don't know which ones were shot on which cameras. Nope. And, you know, the sensors of the cannons that she's using, it's something like the, it's probably like 1DS Mark three and like one DXs and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not using sensors w- much different from five D's. Really. Right. So, 
And you don't know which photos were shot with which camera. Yeah. And she also has like a retouch army. Yeah. You know, that, that are better too. than that are better than any of us. Yeah. So and then I can imagine like that's actually um a good way to explore why you'd use which one. Like looking at some of her work, there's some really intense composite work where mm-hmm. there's clearly a ton of post processing and um like the stuff she did for Disney. Mm-hmm. That's that should all be shot on a hundred megapixel Hasselblad because uh, a retoucher is going to need to go in and like do green screen work and composite work and be removing every bit of information they can from it. And you want to be able to do that with as much detail as possible before you start manipulating your image, right? Like why would you work with a, a low resolution image? You would want the maximum resolution so that as you isolate and crop your, your, your details of the photo, all the information's there. So anyway, going back to the the point of that is that I'm looking at that system and I'm like, oh, this is this would be the bee's knees. Mm-hmm. I just said that, and then or <laughs> you know I you know but then I look at like okay what's realistic and I keep going back to the the six four five Z yeah Pentax totally um, because I can get a whole kit from B and H for fifteen grand yeah which is you know what thirty five grand less than than a phase one kit <laughs> well and so that's that starts getting even i mean i feel like we've had relatively little insight to offer already into why uh people make these decisions but choosing between those two yeah i think um well okay wait i do know one i mean with the, the uh there there are restrictions with the 645z regarding shutter speeds and mm-hmm. sync speeds i think it's like it's it's not a leaf shutter it's not a leaf shutter. And it's, I think it was even more limited than most 35s in mm. some way. I don't remember. So, but um, there we go. There, there are, there are some reasons and, and it's in ways that like there's the cameras just do behave differently than a 35 mil. All of this is why we're not great at talking about it is because it's not just a bigger 35. It's a different camera mm-hmm. um, and things like a leaf shutter. I mean, the fact that your shutter even could work a different way is something to get used to. And I think you have to spend time with it to really understand it. And I think that once, like if you're a, a predominant studio photographer, like a leaf shutter, you know, I think that that would be kind of just the I obvious choice for anybody to have. But um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's superior. <laughs> so I don't know anything about leaf shutters, but why can't they be on my Canon, for example? Do, can they not go as, as as fast per second? Or like, what's the limitation that you can't just put them on? Like, why can't I buy a really high end 35 mil camera with a leaf shutter? Well, because 35 millimeter cameras are the shutters built into the camera body and not the lens. Yeah, but so why is it just because nobody would buy them? Like, I guess why hasn't why isn't there one camera that does that? Probably because of technology and, and price. You know, I think that at that point... It's just prohibitive. Some, yeah, it's prohibitive. I think that yeah, at that sense. point, somebody would say, well, why don't you just go medium format? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's probably true. I mean, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a 35 mil that was leap shutter. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe mm. a compact or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know. It escapes me. This is a whole episode about the uh, things we don't know much about, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, what, what do you shoot with your, um, your film meeting format stuff the most? Like, what do you go back to all the time then? So most of the time, that's the stuff that when I really want to explore, I, I guess a lot of landscape is, is probably more like landscape and, 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 uh, urban details stuff mm-hmm. like that. Cause it's funny how I look at it. Cause I say that kind of like I actually do a lot of it. I don't actually do a lot of it. Let's be honest. I have kids and, and a full-time job. Like I don't get to do what I want to do as much as I want to. All right. Um, but that's when I usually pull that stuff out. A, it's lightweight. You know, I have two lenses for my Mamiya, you know, and it puts me into this zone where like I know what it's capable of. And so I go out looking for the stuff that it's going to look right. the most awesome with that camera. Right, right. And in most of the cases that I'm presented with, it's no kind of lifestyle. I'm not shooting food or kids or theater or, you know, any of the things that I shoot regularly. With, slower things. With, yeah, definitely slower things. You could ask what the aperture speeds are on the, the lenses that you work with. Yeah, um, the fastest they go is, is four. Okay. 
So, you know, like I have a 65 mil, it's a four, and then I have 150, that's a four five. Mm-hmm. They're hard to use because it's a rangefinder system. So the longer the lens you get, the less you can actually see in the viewfinder. Um, the longest lens that they make for that system, you you have to guess. You can't even see, <laughs> which is the stupidest thing. Yeah, that's got to be tough. You know, like if you go and try to read reviews on it, people are like, I don't know, because you can't use it. <laughs> right, I didn't even try. <laughs> and the minimum aperture is f8 because they know that you'll screw up sharpening or yeah. the uh, focus. Yeah. So it's kind of not a deal. So the 150 is really pretty much the longest lens you can use with that, which is roughly equivalent to an 85 millimeter. Um, which I, I have a lot of fun with that in the street, to be honest. You know, like I, I love shooting that in the street. Um, even sometimes, you know, in the field doing like landscape stuff. I mean, the way I think of it is it's like, okay, this is the large format that I can carry with me. Right. You know, I just can't do a lot of, you know, trickery with it. Yeah. I can't do like close focus. I can't do a lot of shallow depth stuff. So usually when I when I pull out that camera, I'm thinking, okay, I want maximum everything. Right. This is why I'm taking this is because I want to max it out. Well, and I do find that looking at the, the film work that I've done on uh, medium format, you see the difference a lot more there. 400, ISO 400 film mm-hmm. looks noticeably sharper on the larger format. No, no, no question. Know, there's so much, grain is so much larger that increasing the format size makes a huge difference. Massive I mean, difference. All of a sudden, yeah. even 800 looks really clean on medium format film, mm-hmm. um, which 35 does not. You know, the grain is, is much more visible than uh, even at extremely high digital ISOs. So, I mean, anything over 800, you know, scanned can kind of look like a color vomit. <laughs> you know, like a really, yeah. really textured color vomit. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's exactly what you want. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I mean, ISO 400 medium format through the Mamiya 7 is clean. Yeah, just perfectly clean. Yeah. yeah. And God, it's just the color. And I can just, I can get passionate about it. You, know, you well, really it, do it, see a difference. Something we talk about with film all the time is that feeling of slowing down in a good way, mm-hmm. you know, slowing down to pay more attention. So th- there's a bit of that advantage working with digital medium format too, where each each shot is more valuable because it takes up more of your hard drive. And you, yes, yeah. and you have to wait for it a little more, right? Like you're since you're slowing down, you do spend a bit more time on each shot because um, like there is some kind of cost to you, uh, even if it's a small amount. There's a little more cost than there is with 35. So you focus a bit harder and um you know one would make, hope yeah you know because if you're spending that much more money to create your photos and you're not thinking about it that much more mm-hmm. then you're probably just like super fortunate yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's really out of out of reach for most people i really love to see somebody that really understands these things do some tests, uh, like mm-hmm. really hardcore tests between 35 and, and larger formats. Also, we keep saying 35 mil versus medium format because there are different options of what a bigger format can be, uh, mm-hmm. just in case that's not clear to anybody out there. It's not one size fits all, so. Definitely not. Um, whereas 35 is more standardized. Um, but I sent you that one sample on the first day that I had the X1D and the Sony A9. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did kind of a shootout with them and the Canon 5D and or Mark IV and the A7R2. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I mean, what was your impression from that sample? If you if you remember, because that was a few weeks ago. Well, you asked me which was which, and I got it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which I think you know doesn't that answer everything? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what happened with everybody I showed it to. And so there's a little bit of a cheat to it in that I did color correct them to look similar. But to me, that's part of the point. The data is there so that you can bring them close enough together that people very aware of photography have a hard time telling them apart when they're downsized, like they're brought down to a similar size and looked at on a digital screen. But why I say I'd be interested in, in somebody doing more extensive testing is like, I'm sure that if you look for the cases where that 16-bit uh, is really being pushed compared to the lower bitrate RAWs on Sony's and Canon's, uh, you could find a lot of circumstances where the image is just holding up better as you process it. 
Um, like I, I wonder maybe if uh, there's those things that Lightroom always does when the HSL sliders, like it, this happens around neon lights all the time as an example. Ah. It just catches an edge and you get a hard edge where there should be a gradient. Mm-hmm. I wonder if these cameras would maybe be able to avoid circumstances like that or something. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, I feel like that's something that it's kind of a tell for certain presets like VSEO. Oh, trust me. <laughs> totally crazy. And you know what else drives me crazy is that Lightroom's processing is much worse. Because I don't blame VSEO, I blame Lightroom because mm-hmm. uh, the, the filters in Lightroom look worse for that than out of the app, well, the iPhone app. Mm. I think there is some kind of thing going on in Lightroom. Uh, and also, I mean, it was really crazy to see VSCO added uh, video filters. In oh, the I, I, yeah, I just saw that. What's up yeah. with that? Well, I this, it's really exciting to me because there's been no good way to get nice color out of phone videos before that I knew of. I mean, I downloaded a dozen video processing apps and they all looked like complete garbage. And yeah, now you can, uh, it's still in beta mode, so I think you have to be a member of VSCOX, is that what they call it? Like the the month, like the subscription service. And I, I got that. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm able to play with it. Um, nice. Still still in beta, but yeah, your videos can just look like your photos. It's amazing. It's it's really crazy. Yeah, and and then cool. another thing VSCO did recently is added um, a Lightroom pack that matches their mobile pack, uh, which is a great idea. I'm really happy they did that. So if you already like a certain filter on your phone, you can start using it on the desktop, but I would still, I would still just love them to build their own processing engine. Whatever they're doing on the phone does a really beautiful job with colors. Like I think at times it's doing something better than what Lightroom does. Um, not, not in all ways, like uh, highlight and shadow recovery. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pro- probably can't handle raw files in the, nearly as well or noise reduction or like there's a million things can't do as well but just that basic like curves and hsl stuff it does i think it does better so i think that's really interesting yeah it'd be interesting to see them branch out in that way yeah i wonder if they will i mean i know it's a smaller market so who wants to take on adobe well did you see oh wait no this is getting into news i don't want to get into news <laughs> just adobe uh, acknowledging how slow lightroom is that, that yeah was really interesting so we'll, we'll see where that goes i didn't actually read about it i guess you don't want to talk about it yeah well i mean not too much like yeah well there's not much to talk about basically they just sort of said you know hey we realize that it's slow we're, we're working on it so gotcha which um, is good i'm glad that they acknowledged it because you hear people complaining like crazy about yeah. it it's a real, sometimes it's a really big problem for us. Like after a full day of shooting where we have a lot to work with and we need a quick turnaround, mm-hmm. sometimes it's a total bottom. Like we're just sitting there waiting for Lightroom for a couple hours while it chews through a uh, preview generation. Hmm. So um, I've played around a bit in the past with photo mechanic. Are you, are yes. you like kept to the whole photo mechanic thing? Yeah. And I just, I've been able to get, I don't like the idea of that workflow. No. Download everything to a folder and then open the folder in another app, Photo Mechanic, and then select your pics. And then, imp- I mean, yeah. it adds a lot of ugly steps. And um, yep. I feel like it's you're a lot more likely to screw something up. It's sloppy, in, in, in my opinion. Yeah. But it's we, fast, sure. We're, we're yeah, going to try it, though. So I, I've installed the trial and just see if we can make it work because it, it's such a big problem sometimes. Like, we just need to be able to get stuff done quicker. So, um, yeah, Amen. that's, that's what we're going to try until Lightroom does something about it. Do you use any Lightroom controls like that? Like the, uh, key assignment stuff like Visco keys or, um, yeah, either that or like, I got it. MIDI controllers. Basically. Yeah. 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 There's a, well, there's, a, there's quite a few of them now, but no, I, I, I'm not using any of them, which I feel like a hypocrite for it because for years I was saying the day somebody makes this, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> and then the thing is, I, I, don't, I don't work at like a desk set up as often as I used to. Like mm-hmm. I'm not in the same place. I'm not going to travel around with a whole keyboard MIDI controller. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I haven't bought one. I haven't played with one. I probably won't. I don't really, I don't know. No, it would probably speed me up quite a bit i uh, the keys that i'm really missing are like exposure and, and white balance 
if I could just have keys for those things, it would, it would definitely help. But yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm with you. That's pretty much what I use it most as well. Well, so what do you, what are you using that I didn't realize you were using one of those? I'm not. Oh, okay. I'm just saying so what, like those are just the tools. You use those the are the tools that I would use as well, or that I do use the most and that yeah. I would most likely use as well. So yeah. similar. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I look at that stuff and I want, I'm curious because I'm like, I'd do anything to save an hour. Yeah, of course. I feel like I'm dying. This just this past week, I shot a couple events, and and I, I think I probably made about three thousand photos. And getting through it was just the longest couple days. Well, where's your ser- most serious time sink? Like, where does it disappear? Um, I think it just disappears in the selecting and and normalizing of all the photos. So mostly like the pre-processing kind of the 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 editing process. Yeah, that's the word I use: normalize. You know, mm-hmm. so that all the photos have a, a similar. Oh, okay. Well, that's actually not what I meant. I um. Okay, so you've selected your photos already, and now you're just. No, I do it at the same time. So like. Oh, at... you're crazy. Well, what? I don't always do it that way, but sometimes I do. It just depends because sometimes I find it's just as fast because I'll I'll just like sync process a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, it just depends on how careful I have to be with the content. Well, but wait, then what are you doing? So you're you're flipping through, and you're like, okay, I'm going to use this photo. Mm-hmm. So you stop on it. And you do some editing, and then you continue to look for more selections? No. So I'm talking about when I'm shooting events. Yeah. And most of the photos are going to probably end up getting used. So what I'm doing is I'm just, as I'm going through them, I'm making sure that the uh, exposures and and color balances and everything are all relative. But you're not editing the ones that you're rejecting, I no. Listen. Well, I'm I'm not editing them any more than I am any other ones. Oh, but you are editing them a little. Yeah, because I might they might end up oh, in okay. in a in a big select sync. Yeah. Then I'll, I'll click to the next photo and reject it. Click yeah. to the next one, reject it. Click well, to so the next one, question. save it. Do, do you apply your preset to all the photos, including rejects? Yes. Oh, okay. Do you do it on import? Um, usually do it on import. It oh. just really depends on what I'm doing. Like for instance, yeah. uh, I, I've been shooting more live theater productions. And I don't use any of the Visco presets for that because I just don't think that they they quite work. That makes them muddy, mm-hmm. um, in my opinion. <laughs> um, and so I, I had to make some of my own. You know, like I have a couple different ones. So like I find that like oftentimes in theater lighting, when when there's a lot of blue, um, especially with with the VSEO filters, like it gets pretty weird. Like you get a lot of um, weird. Like like you said, like there's no gradient. It's just like these hard. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to make a couple of my own presets that that would kind of like tackle these different issues that I've come up with. And so what I'll do is I'll I'll usually just start with the um, preset that I, I've named Theater Natural. I'll apply that to everything, and then as I come through the ones that are, are a bit more tricky, then I'll just go ahead and select all those ones and then apply the preset to those ones. All right, makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, hopefully there's not, you know, there's not a ton of tweaking. So the reason I don't apply any presets until I don't apply them until my final selects. So, you know, if, if it's an event, then only the last, you know, 100 or 500 or whatever the selects are um, ever, ever see presets. And the, the reason for me is to keep a more direct connection of what. Um, so I always remember what I'm doing to them. Like by looking at originals for a while, and then when I apply the preset, I'm like, like I can see the pop of like, oh, there it is. Like there's the preset, and it kind of keeps it fresh in my mind. Like I know how far it's taking it, and I, f- I find it for me easier to spot mistakes or like not get too comfortable with with the preset, right? Like I th- I was doing because early uh, a few years ago I was applying a VSEO preset to everything I imported, and it would um it was too contrasty and too muddy and I'd never should have been using it, but I started getting really used to it. And then I looked at the natural photos out of the camera and I'm like, Oh, these are so flat and there's nothing to them. There's no color. There's no personality. Yeah. And it's cause I'd gotten too used to the preset. So it's so true. And I, I, I it's actually, I'm working my way off of any, uh, anybody else's presets. Well, and I'm just making crazy. It is that we like, I, maybe this is just me, but, that you end up in those situations where you're like looking at a photo out of many that you've just been working on. You're like, wait, is this one processed or not yet? Like, <laughs> and there's those 
it's so often, especially when Anya and I are working on photos together. So she'll have been doing something and sent me a photo and I don't know what she did. Mm-hmm. And there's those times that I'm staring and I'm like, I can't figure out if this is already processed. And it's just sort of this like mental blind spot that all of a sudden kicks in because the original and the process photo look completely different. If you see the flip, it's so obvious and it jumps out at you. Mm-hmm. But if you've just kind of been in a certain zone or looking at a certain set of photos or your eyes get adjusted to certain contrast or saturation levels, you just get blind to what a, a, a neutral or a processed photo look like. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And it's actually, that's a really interesting point because I often find that, that people who maybe didn't have the same level of discipline um, that I did in terms of their, their, their learning about things like, you know, contrast and in color balance, mm-hmm. you know, when they start using presets, they start to rely on whatever it is that they're seeing within those things. And then once you take those yeah. things away, or if, you know, as an editor, if I have to ask for, for changes on something, it can really stump people. Yeah, for sure. You know, cause they don't, they don't actually understand the principles Mm-hmm. underneath it i i think that my my take on it personally has been that presets can be great because maybe they're just you know a quick step stone to a look that you know that you want and you understand how it got there and you therefore understand what you may need to do to quickly you know remedy any kind of thing that might go wrong right. in the mix yeah. um but it, you know, I, 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 my, the flip side of that is that presets can be a terrible crutch. Yeah, it's a lot of crutches out there. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you just be building your reputation on, on a preset that might get real overused and and, and yucky, and then people just overnight might just suddenly dismiss you. Like I hear yeah. it all the time now. People are like, you know, uh, Visco. Eh. It, well, it's funny. Like when I use my, um, I, so the way that we process stuff or, or that I process stuff for basically the DSLR stuff on a computer, anything in Lightroom Mm -hmm. is a much softer touch than anything that goes on to places like Instagram, which is really like, it's, it's sort of strange, but it's just the context of that place. And the Instagram looks, I'm like, too bold with them sometimes. Like some of those looks are are a bit crazy and yeah, they're always Visco. Um, and, but I don't mind playing with them as much for some reason out there. Mm-hmm. But then the the look that I'm like more locked into in Lightroom is so much more toned down, um, and I think just less like identifiable as any specific look. Uh, it's it's just going for a more natural film emulation, um, and I, I don't know. It's just a, a habit I've developed, and also a, a we, an example of the kind of neutrality blindness that I fall into all the time is with video uh, when you're shooting in flat color profiles, like log profiles, there isn't one standard way of going from log into a full contrast, uh, full saturation color mode. There there isn't a single correct way that you hit this one button and every time it does the right thing to get you there, you kind of need to develop your way of of getting the color to the right place. Um, Unless you're in certain systems like red, uh, has a has ways of doing it, mm-hmm. uh, but shooting with Sony's, there isn't a, a obvious direct way to get it right every time. And so often, I'll think that I finished color processing a video, and I rewatch it, and I'm like, what? And, and I watch it next to a photo from that shoot. I'm like, wait a minute, this is like completely desaturated. There's no contrast. There's no, it's so like I didn't bring the color back in because I got so used to the extreme flatness of the, the log profile that I am afraid to really bring the, the saturation back. Um, so it's just a good example of how far uh, the, the context of what you're working in can skew your perception of, of what you're looking at. No doubt. Um, you know, and it, this is also why like lighting in a room is important. I was working at um, a friend's place on a laptop and he just had all of those like vintage bulbs that are really, really, amber, like really warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the bulbs in the room were like that. There wasn't any more new, normal, like soft white lights. And 
I was just doing the worst job of color processing ever. Like <laughs> my screen looked intensely blue. Like all I could see is this blueness. So everything I did was just totally, obs- and it was just because of what my peripheral vision could see. And I was really struggling to find neutral at all. And uh, I had to kind of look at it again with fresh eyes in the morning to see just how wrong I was. Isn't it amazing? Those are the kinds of things that, that really do separate uh, the quality of somebody's work, really. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're considering all those things. Okay, so I just moved and I'm, I have a new office. And Oh yeah, congratulations. Thank you, thank you much. I'm very happy. Um, and so in my previous office, which you were very familiar with, and some mm-hmm. people who listen might have seen it in various video things that we've done, it was all like this kind of cherry-toned wood. A lot of brown, a lot of warm brown. Yeah, like a reddish warm brown. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of environment is going to affect things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now in this new bedroom, or sorry, this new office, when I moved in, the the paint in here was a maroon and some kind of off-yellow color, and it was vomit. Oh, yeah, that's that's got to go. Yeah, it, it's gone. It was the very first thing that, that ha- we're not even done packing. And it was like, okay, we're going to paint this office first. Yeah. yeah. And so now it's all neutral tone. There's no color in here. And to some people, they might walk in and think, God, there's no color in here. And to me, I'm like, isn't it great? Yeah. No, for, from just an interior decorating perspective, people, I think people have this wrong assumption of that if you paint your walls a completely neutral color, like white, for example, Mm -hmm. that it's unfinished. And that is just not the case. I mean, you can bring all the color in through your paintings and Mm -hmm. your blankets and your furniture, like everything can be colorful. And if your walls ceiling are white, it's fine. You don't need all it might be wall. better than fine. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it is almost always a better decision unless you're going for like something really specific. If you've got some crazy, bo- like it should either be white or extremely bold, mm-hmm. but nothing in between. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and also like however you're placing things, like whatever you're putting in that room should also complement whatever, like if you're going to do a bold color, mm-hmm. you're going to want stuff in there that complements that. Do you want to buy all of your furniture and your art to match one bucket of paint that you put on a wall? Hells no. That shouldn't determine everything else. It sh- everything else should be bringing the... Co- anyway, this isn't... I agree with you. Photography, but... No, but it is, though. It's it's yeah. not direct, but... I mean, But it also causes issues when you're shooting, too. Like, oh, God, when people have all yellow walls and you need to bounce a flash it's a nightmare. It's the worst yeah. and also like this is something that that maybe a lot of people don't think about but here's the, probably the cheapest tip that i can give you that that is going to save your ass one day and you might not even realize it don't wear colors when you're shooting right yeah totally just don't wear white most of the time unless you need something that's that's going to suck up all the light and wear black yeah because that stuff affects your photos yeah you you might not realize it but it does and no just imagine being close to a subject in studio where you've got flash just kind of bouncing around the room Mm -hmm. like usually most lighting setup aren't that controlled like light is hitting you and imagine if you're wearing a bright red shirt yeah. Of course, that's going to reflect back on them if you're like four I don't feet away. I have to away. imagine I've done it. <laughs> I've made that mistake. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting when, when everything else is in a room is controlled and you get different results. Yeah. <laughs> and you well, realize, shit, yeah, it's my clothes. Where <laughs> <laughs> another trick is uh, when you're shooting in grass, like wide open grass, mm-hmm. so like in a field, that green always spills back into the person. And I really dislike that look. Me too. Green grass and skin. So depending how much energy you're putting into the photo, like you have the time to, what I've done a few times is lay out something white in front of them, like just spread out a blanket or a sheet or a um, even um, if you want to do some reflecting, there's different like plastics or tarps you could get at Home Depot or whatever. Mm -hmm. And just try to cover a space in front of them that's like 10 feet square just so all of the, the closest area to them isn't bouncing the green back into them, and it can make a really big difference. Then you get a natural reflector, too. Like, if it's white, yep. it can bring some light back into them. And, yeah, it's, it seems like compare compare shooting somebody in the exact same lighting situation on grass and then put them on cement next to it and just look how much better they look on the cement. It's a no, world of difference. Yeah. 
So. Uh, it's one of the worst. Like I, I've actually had people ask me, like, "Hey, I want to get my you know headshots done in this park or something." Yeah, and I'm like, "No." Yeah. yeah, I mean, or even like if you can stand on the edge of the before the grass, like on the sidewalk at the edge of it, you know, yeah, things like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually even have a not a preset, a um, an action in Photoshop that all it does is neutralizes my skin tones so that like it grabs the most green skin tone and brings it into being more magenta and it grabs the most magenta and makes it more green that I can just kind of paint into uh, any parts of the skin that end up with that kind of effect. Cause I just, I really hate it. Yeah. Me too. It's frustrating um, as hell. Well, so we kind of got off topic there, but that's fine. Uh, I think we talked about as much medium format as we, we, <laughs> as as we, we are knew. aware. <laughs> yeah. I think we need a, a special guest to really go deeper, which, you know, I don't know, maybe someday. Oh yeah, and for anybody that just wants to talk to us in general, um, what, what's your Twitter handle again, Cameron? Uh, Camrocker. Oh, you remembered. Great. Uh, and mine's Stallman. So and I always forget, right? Yeah. Well, I always forget yours too, because because you're different on all the different things. But uh, you know, Twitter's like the the best. If you want to talk about anything photography, we would both love to chat about it. So yeah, and um, just don't don't get upset if you differ from my political perspectives. I won't talk <laughs> about it here. You know, but you know, I may complain about it there, or do get upset. But, you know, that could yeah, be interesting. Whatever, it's fine. Yeah. It's what are you into this week? So um, I watched on uh, HBO the Defiant ones. Have you watched I, it yet? I don't know anything about it. I've only heard the title. Come on. I don't know anything about it. I don't. I don't watch enough stuff. I'm gonna. I'm gonna Google it while you explain it. It's. Uh, it's. It's like a three part. God, is it three part? I think it's three part. Maybe four. Documentary about Jimmy Irvine and, um, and oh, uh, Dr. Okay, Dre. Oh, billboards for this. And holy crap, this guy, Jimmy had his fingers in everything. You know, he just touched so much gold. Gold from completely different worlds in within music. And, and it's just, it's dumbfounding to watch it. Ridiculous. So why isn't this a, an Apple show? Doesn't this seem like exactly what Apple should have made instead of HBO? Well, considering that that a lot of it revolves around Apple, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they talk, they get into the Apple era a bit. They like, talk about that, absolutely, yeah, because mm -hmm. you know that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. Is they kind of starts off talking about the the Apple and Beats deal, which those two were partners in Beats by Dre, and then Apple became bought it out, and I guess they're still working together on it. But it, yeah, so it starts there, and then it tells you all this other story about these two people or not just those two people, but like mainly about Jimmy and then secondarily about Dre and then all of the people <laughs> that, that they worked with in between there. So, so interesting. Cool. I, I, can, I can make time for this. There's only four episodes so far. How about you? Um, so I've been, well, I've been looking for months for a really great camera bag, a, a smaller one. Mm -hmm. My big bags for quite a while have been Langley, which I'm pretty happy with. I, I would generally recommend them, especially their, the smaller one. And now I have the big, the really big one. That's kind of just the, like you open it up and it's just a series of dividers, right? It's like a one part bag. There's no division in it. It's just the pieces of foam that keep everything separate. And generally it's great, but if you don't completely fill it, then things start to flop around and, and fall in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be fully packed, uh, which, so usually when I'm traveling, I totally load that up. It's got, I mean, I, I, I have enough gear that it, on the, on the road that it's always full anyway, but when I'm actually walking around traveling, I don't want to carry everything that I, all the gear that I own just to go do a shoot where I'm only using, you know, two lenses and a camera. Mm -hmm. So I had recommended the, um, Fjall Robin bag uh, a little while ago. And Can I you say that again, Fjall Robin, uh, but I don't know if I'm saying it right. <laughs> F J, uh, a L L R A V E N. Um, and so they're like kind of cheap, just go to school backpacks. Oh, I know these. And there's like a, a camera kit you can put inside. And um, I, I have liked it. And I, I still recommend it, but I, just for people with smaller cameras, like if you're just putting a little mirrorless in there and not a bunch of other stuff, 
but it's just not been holding up to the amount of weight that I've been putting in it. Mm. Um, cause I'll still have the, like the 70 to 200 in there and the 5d and that's, it's way too much for this little thing. And so now the foam pads inside have started to kind of become deformed and, um, it's just meant for less. So what I just ordered today is the peak design everyday backpack. And I'm not, I'm still not convinced that this is exactly what I wanted. Uh, I've looked at it and played with it. Like mine hasn't arrived. So I've only used it in stores so far. And the construction is obviously great. Like they, they, they made a very good backpack. It's very cleverly designed and it uh, checks off a lot of my boxes. So the important things to me are like, well, size, this is the appropriate size it needs to be really supportive. Like the structure inside needs to hold together well so that I know that gear isn't touching other gear, which is the main thing that, sorry, the main thing that's going to damage anything is, is your gear is going to break your other gear because they bang together. So, um, it does a great job of like isolating everything and letting you compartmentalize it however you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously you also get quick, quick access to your camera when you need it. The things that I'm still wishing I could find in a bag is that it, this and all the other well-constructed bags still look like technical gear to me. Like I, I would really like something that felt more like clothing. Like when you go into Nordstrom and you look at all the backpacks, they don't look like this. Like this isn't what you're, this isn't, it's not fashionable is basically what I mean. Like it's meant, these are all meant to look technical. It's a um, pretty nice bag though. <laughs> oh, it's, it's super nice. It's just not like, it doesn't pass as, uh, so, okay. What, what everybody will be thinking right away is Ona bags, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, you can get like a nice leather backpack. Um, it, it doesn't fit the size of laptop I need. It only does 13 inch. I need it to fit a 15 inch. Um, and I think they could look better. Uh, I like they're, very basic leather bags. And I think there's nicer ones out there. Anyway, all of this was like, I just want to make my own bag, but I'm probably not going to do that. <laughs> so instead I ordered this peak design bag and uh, I'm excited to get it. I can tell it's really intel, like smartly engineered. And along with it, I ordered their, um, strap system, their, uh, like camera strap, mm. which also was just a really smart design. And so putting it on, the Sony, which I use for photo or mostly for video. So when you shoot video, you often take off the strap if you need to mount it on something. Uh, So you're taking it on and off a lot. Uh, And the way the Peak Design strap works is that you basically just put little clasps, clasps that stay on the sides and then you can quickly take it on and off of the, the rest of the strap. So love that. Yeah. It's, it seems really smart. I'm going to try it out, see if it um, is everything I dreamed of, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to get it. I'm I'm kind of laughing to myself because I'm looking at this on on their website and uh, you know they've got the one of these layout designs with all the gear that you could fit into it and there's like it's all Nikon and then there's one random Canon L lens. No, really? <laughs> they yeah. just yeah, it's like in case you run into a friend. <laughs> you you borrowed that one and forgot to give it back. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, I mean, as far as camera bags go, I think this this seems. It seems fa- pretty fashionable. Yeah, no, it, it is a it is a really well designed bag. Like looking at them in person sells it so much more too. They are just very well constructed. This is the issue, though, isn't it? Isn't this the thing that that you're never satisfied with? No, it. Yeah, I've I just keep I can't settle on any of these bags. Also, why isn't this in black? Like I ordered the charcoal <laughs> one, which is just slightly darker gray, but like. I know. I Come know. on, black. Like, everything should be black. Like, there should be... Everything should be made in black. There yeah. should be an option for every single thing made. Yeah, why would you not have a black one of anything that you're making? Are you it's nuts? And, and on, that would probably, honestly, revolve, resolve all the fashion issues for me. I feel, I feel like, um, you know, camera bags are... You know, they're kind of in that same realm as sneakers. You know, in terms of, like... You know, people feel like they have to have a bunch of options with them. Um, you know, like how many bags do you have? I have like six. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I keep getting rid of them, so I only have like three. But yeah, I keep I, I keep not being able to get rid of them unless okay. I throw them away, and I, I, I just I've, can't. I've do that. given a few away. So yeah, I've done that. Um, yeah. But some some I, I can't even give away. Like there was there was one I had from a long time ago, some mm-hmm. low pro that like no one would even take it. 
and I get it, you know, I totally get it. Um, but you know, like the, the, the part missing from, from this when comparing it to sneaker culture is, is like those dynamite, <laughs> you know, like sure thing winners. Right. Yeah. Where are those classic winners for, for, for the camera backs? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, why aren't those, why aren't there more go-tos that everybody knows? Like, yeah, this is the one you get. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of options out there. Mm-hmm. there I mean, yeah, no, seemingly there's tons endless. Of there. yeah. There's a, f- a few other ones that looked really attractive and the reviews all just were kind of negative. Like, oh, look, it, it's, it's all visual design and, and the construction's no good. Um, and this is absolutely not the case, both from reviews and just you look like pick this thing up for one second. You're like, oh, yes, this is made very well. Um, yeah. Other things that not enough camera bags do, right? So this was a big, uh, this was key for me, is it's not covered in straps. So many of the, even the small bags that are meant to be lightweight have the really big, thick hiking straps with the <laughs> cross straps that you like uh, clip across your chest and clip mm-hmm. across your waist. And then they're like dangling like crazy. And like, I don't want to, you know, be traveling and like walk into a church wearing that, or like, you know, go to a fashion show, like with just straps dangling everywhere. Like the, so with this one, there is a cross strap that you can in one or two seconds fully remove and just put in the bag, put in your pocket, whatever. And I see you, it. Yeah. You can, that's yeah, you nice. can just use it normally. It's so smart. Well, especially you think about it like hiking, you know, yeah. like if, especially yeah. if you're in any kind of like thick brush or trees, like those, those, all those little straps are just like, they're dangerous because they might get caught on anything. Yeah. And I, then I, like, you know, you're totally, walking at full speed and all of a sudden you get ripped, the, the bag either gets ripped off you it's or. It's so you, weird to me. Cause obviously like low pro and think tank and all these brands are spending a lot of time thinking about their design, but they don't have strap man they don't look at the straps as a problem they just look at them like oh yeah okay we're done like, in we're fact finished designing it there's just <laughs> straps all over the place so when we were when we were packing to move my wife's looking at at all the the little extra straps that come with the, the think tank <laughs> yeah. stuff and she's just yeah. like do you need that i'm like i mean i think after three or four years <laughs> probably not yeah i've already gotten rid of the bag i don't think I need straps. <laughs> but like it was kind of unbelievable because i had this entire drawer full of extra straps that that i'd never even taken out of the packaging yeah and it's it what like uh, which bag diseases even go with i have no yeah, idea i know it's so dumb uh who are these bag designers uh give me a call and i'll i'll help you out and please like if you can do that then like what do you think them... it would take to like design to like manufacture one bag no like not one um unit but like you know one uh, um design of a bag and, a, a and make a thousand of them a lot like like a year could i do it in a year do you have a year to do nothing else no <laughs> no i mean it's you know you I know have so... a lot of ideas Sorry to, I'm going to extend this just a minute more because sure. like, okay, so there's a, a show on Netflix called Abstract. It's all about Yeah, um, yeah it's a design. great show. I only watched a couple, but. Did you great. watch the one about sneakers? No, I haven't. Oh. Well, go and watch that. Okay. I will. Because, you know, when you hear like how overwhelming the work becomes and it takes over your life and you don't, you know, it, Yeah. You're lucky you don't have kids. <laughs> yeah. Do it now before you be, decide to have them. Because I'll never be productive again afterwards. Is that what you're saying? Not never. <laughs> and not 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 productive. Yeah. It's just like, it just depends like on, you know, how, A, like what kind of relationship do you want to have with the kids? <laughs> do you <laughs> want to know them at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to be, you know, do you want them to remember you? And, and like, do you want them to think of you when you're retired and, yeah, you know, yeah. when you're sick yeah. and you need help, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's a lot to think about. All right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And then music-wise, uh, I'm only saying this because you would be interested that I was I was enjoying a loud band. Uh, no way. We were, at, we were at two music festivals on this last trip, and Anya bought a band shirt. She's like... She, we, we just, we had some money left over on, um, or like wristbands for the festival. We're like, Oh, we got to spend this somehow. And she's like, Oh, I like that t-shirt. And it was for a band called pup. And, hmm. uh, we didn't know who they were, but I've been listening to them since and saw them at the next festival. And they're just this like Vancouver punk rock band that I don't know. There's, there's, like, there's like no new punk rock bands. So 
That was no, fun. There are new ones. There, I mean, there are always the, new ones. There's no new ones that break through to me somehow. <laughs> that you care about? Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem is that, yeah. you know, most of the time they're just not that interesting. Okay. Let's talk a few more seconds. Are there any other, like what really big rock bands exist right now that are, that are like new None. and successful? None. Right? It, that's not just me? No, it's not just you. Yeah. It's weird. Well, there's I mean, no, there's no, there's no avenue to take anymore. Yeah, well, there's nobody to listen to it because nobody cares. Nobody cares. Like people yeah. don't buy records anymore. Well, but it's not like people don't like music. I mean, I think it's just like people listen to a lot of hip hop and a lot of EDM. Ew. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hip hop. Yes, <laughs> I love. I'm. I'm. That's that's kind of the only new music that I'm consistently excited by. Maybe only you and everyone else. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, because everything else that I, that I think I listen to is stuff that's the bands that have been around for you know at least ten years, if not yeah, twenty. Yeah, exactly. Or 30. I mean, I'm just excited about the new Queens of the Stone Age album, but that's that's all I got to look forward to. Wow, I haven't been excited about them in a long time. I, the sing the single so far is pretty good, so that's why. I'm, well, it's probably gonna be the best song. We'll see. <laughs> I hope not. I I would I would be happy if if they made something that that I wanted to hear. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we'll it's see. been a while. I've been actually I've been in, in listening to '60s rock lately. Oh, like, nice! I, I just I just bought um, uh, "Love's Forever Changes" on vinyl. All right, and um, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's it's really, really fascinating group. And and you know the thing about Love was that, um, and I didn't realize until I just heard this story on NPR randomly recently. And uh, Arthur Lee was the 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 guy behind Love. Um, and they were an LA band and they were, you know, sort of in the same circle. I mean, I know that they were, they had the same producer and they were on the same label as the doors in LA at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they ran with those, that crowd, I guess, but they, they never played any shows outside of LA ever. Mm-hmm. Like the, he refused to tour the band. And, you know, like I caught this conversation kind of loud and, and that was the thing that really stuck out to me. And, you know, I, I, I'd been listening to it more and more and listening to the lyrics, just thinking about that, that idea of, of being a band that, that people still like and listen to 40, 50 years later, you know, and, and, and actually being more successful, like 40 or 50 years later than you were, you know, in your prime mm-hmm. and just, you know, kind of like what that means for, you know, just as art. You know, I think it's really kind of a fascinating thing because, you know, like, I think that most most acts, you know, most people that get in get in a band, you know, they probably think like, you know, you first, you know, you want to you want to break a bit in your in your hometown, and then you want to break regionally, and you know, like sooner than later, you need to start touring nationally. And you know, no, <laughs> it's actually not really the case. Like, mm-hmm. if you if you don't have something that that you know first of all like if you want to be anything that's worth anything like you have to appeal to your to your area really you know um otherwise like how are you going to sustain it how are you going to sustain interest if you don't appeal to your local does does this mean they were mostly a studio band or like they were a live band they just weren't a touring live band yeah exactly right yeah because like i can think of other bands that just like the success came so much later from recordings like nick Drake or yeah. um, mm-hmm. Neutral Milk Hotel. Uh, like sure. He just never wanted to tour, or others that I'm not thinking of. But but there's um, plenty of of, yeah. of those. I mean, XTC is yeah. one of those bands that that did incredible studio records that you know just couldn't couldn't handle the late stage right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think on some some level, maybe you know. Live shows are overrated. <laughs> oh, this reminds me of, have you seen, well, I didn't see it, so I don't know. I'm bringing up the, the new Beatles documentary um, oh. by Ron Howard, I think. So uh, high budget. And it's all about the, I think they're live years. Like That's it. Yeah, eight days a week. Um, yeah, and that's that perfect, perfect name. Yeah, because yeah, that's the, you know that's literally all they did. Yeah, but they're club days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, that's you I know, watch it. That, that's actually an interesting, you know, like you, you know, people are talking about 
you know, drugs these days again, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like being an epidemic and um, particularly in the States with the opioid, opioid crisis, as they're calling Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, like you, you look back and you, you know, you think a lot of people tend to like, you know, think, oh, this is just happening now, (laughs) you know, and you look back at like, you know, people like Johnny Cash or or the Beatles, (laughs) like in their heyday when they were touring. They were in crisis. uh... That's all they, that's the only thing they get that kept them going. I mean, these, you know, like you hear stories about Johnny Cash taking like 50 uppers and 50 downers a day just to get through the day. So the last book I read, uh, like last week was uh, Blitzed, which is about the history of drugs in the third reich and that was so like just before world war ii is when they invented meth Mm. and basically like a lot of the army and especially hitler were like totally messed on on meth and then eventually uh oxycontin for for hitler and cocaine which um is crazy (laughs) But uh, yeah, so I was thinking about drugs last week because of that. So and yeah, and now it's been a rolling know, epidemic for years. And now Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, follow follow Cameron on Twitter at uh, Cam Rocker. Uh, you're lucky to be a Canadian. That's all I gotta say.